Welcome to Stories from an Island. I'm Mark Borbus. In this fiction podcast, I read stories I've written in my ongoing attempt to make sense of the world around me. These are all works of fiction, so any resemblance to people alive or dead is purely coincidental. Thanks for taking the time to listen. This episode contains mature content. So if you're one of my kids, one of their friends, or easily offended, you should skip this one. Today's episode is the first chapter in a story series entitled A Fairy Tale. Here we go. One thousand two hundred and forty-two, Barbara counted in her head as she pushed the carpet sweeper away from her. She used to keep careful track of the areas that she'd swept and not swept, overlapping her tracks just like you would with a lawnmower. That was before she realized that the sweeper didn't actually do anything. 1,243, she counted. At her current pace of 20 strokes a minute, her shift would end in only 400 more pushes of the sweeper. Oh, uh, let me lift my legs so you can get underneath, said a male voice. Barbara looked up to see his earnest eyes and his quick smile. His legs hovered in midair in front of the row of seats. Never mind, she said. If I don't get it, someone else will. He slowly lowered his legs, and she resumed sweeping. Hey, Bill, Barbara called across the parking lot. Can you jump me? Bill sighed. It was 11.30. The ferry was over an hour late getting in, and it was raining heavily. Sure, he said, hopping into his battered blue pickup and crossing the parking lot. He pulled to a stop, hood to hood, with Barbara's red hatchback. He yanked the hood release, leaned over to retrieve the booster cables from the floor on the passenger side, and got out into the teeming rain. Barbara already had the hood up on her car and was holding a People magazine over her head. How many times are we going to do this before you replace your battery? asked Bill. It just started acting up before this rotation, she lied. Barb, I've been jumping you for the better part of a month now, he said. Go see Richard and get it fixed. She owed Richard the mechanic $250 from the last repair and was studiously avoiding him. Will do. She lied again. She shuffled slowly to the driver's side of the faded red hatchback and lowered herself heavily into the seat. Turning the key, she heard the new $250 starter rasp as it urged the pint-sidest engine to life. She watched through the side window as Bill packed up the cables. He knocked out the prop rod and lowered the hatchback's hood, giving it a gentle pat. She waved and mouthed, thanks, through the rain-slicked windshield. She eased the car into reverse, backed around, and turned off the main road leading away from the ferry terminal. Flicking on the wipers, she watched the driver's side blades skitter across the windshield, clearing only part of the view forward. The passenger side wiper assembly was missing altogether. A few minutes later, she turned into a driveway. The number sign hung from a single bolt, flapping in the wind so that the numbers were only occasionally visible. The fire department had already called three times to ask her to fix it warning that she would be subject to a fine if the sign was not clearly visible on their next pass by her house. The hatchback rocked violently as it crawled up the driveway. It bottomed out, and the wheels spun freely until they regained a split second of traction and spun the car forward another few feet. Another dozen bone-jarring drops, and then she navigated a tight right-hand corner and arrived in front of a small cottage. The porch light flickered. 
A row of cardboard boxes full of donations for the local charity lay disintegrating as the overflowing gutters spilled sheets of water onto them. She backed the car around, pointing its nose down the driveway so that she could roll start it in the morning. Grabbing her purse, Barbara heaved herself out of the car and slammed the door on the seatbelt. She looked back at it briefly. Then she turned and plodded towards the house, stepping over the interlocking paving stones that had been dislodged by the seasonal stream that ran out from under the house. Mounting the steps, she avoided the second one, which hung at a crazy angle, and flung open the front door. She flicked on the lights and took in the view of everything she hadn't done yesterday, or the day before, or the day before that. Dirty dishes were stacked around the counters. Last night's chip bag and blanket lay on the couch, creating a Dali-esque tableau. A cluster of half a dozen pairs of shoes lay jumbled at her feet. She sighed, kicked her shoes off, dropped her coat to the floor, and flicked off the light again. There was enough light from the flickering porch fixture to illuminate the path to the bedroom. It wasn't always like this. There was a time when this cottage was the center of a happy life. She and her husband had scraped together just enough to buy it on the income from her deckhand job on the ferry and his sporadic income as a sculptor. The local banker bought one of Dennis's erotic myth pieces the day before the mortgage closed, so their income would trip over the magic line for funding. The piece still sat on the banker's desk, prompting the occasional, Mommy, what is that man with the bird wings doing to that lady with a unicorn head? From a child forced to sit still while her parents signed papers. The banker kept a bowl of lollipops in his desk drawer for these situations, pulling it out with great ceremony to distract the child. She and her partner had planted a small garden, converted the garage into a studio for Dennis, and started a weekly potluck supper with friends. The house was a joyful place, full of hope and energy. Dennis's sculptures had found an adoring audience in the swarms of middle-aged women who visited the island. The combination of the erotic subject matter and Dennis's roguish charm made them simultaneously blush and open their pocketbooks. The couple bought a dog. Barbara was promoted on the ferry, rising above the pelting rain and exhaust fumes on the deck to a comfortable, warm position behind the cash register. She made funny announcements when they arrived at the various ports of call. Then, things started to change. At first, it was just at work. She stopped helping elderly customers operate the coffee machine. She stopped telling bewildered tourists where to find the sugar. She stopped smiling when she handed back change. The humor in her announcements faded as she adopted the monotone mumble famous across the ferry system. Then it spread to home. She took to leaving her coffee cup beside the sink rather than rinsing it. She'd leave her shoes by the front door instead of putting them away. Three days' worth of clothes created a perpetual midden in the corner of their bedroom. She chalked it up to an adult rebellion against her mother's insatiable need for tidiness. Now in her 70s, Dorothy Watson still woke at 5 a.m. to prepare breakfast for guests and stayed up late to welcome weary travelers to her bed and breakfast when they got off the last ferry to the island on Friday nights. She didn't run a bed and breakfast, Barbara told herself. She was married to a sculptor. They lived a bohemian lifestyle. A little mess never hurt anyone. Standing at the edge of their parched garden, Dennis held a withered carrot and said, I can't do everything, you know. But it was too late. What started as mild laziness had become a lifestyle. 
She would get a little better by the end of her four days off, but would fall another rung down the ladder to laziness by the end of a five-day shift on the ferries. Then, one day, Dennis said, I've had enough. You don't take responsibility for anything. He called the dog over, and they both left in a pickup truck full of half-carved stone and tools. They never came back. For a while, the friends still visited. But after the last potluck, where she contributed a sour cream and onion chip carton, and a bottle of cheap white wine, both open, both half-consumed, she found herself spending more and more time alone. She shuffled into the bedroom, pulled off her pants and socks, unclipped her bra under her shirt, and crawled into the unmade bed. She was swabbing fresh seagull shit off the ferry deck. Every time she got it clean, another fucker would fly by and drop a loose load from the skies. It landed with a wet smack and splattered onto her shoes. She started swabbing again, doubly annoyed by the ringing sound now coming from the fairy loudspeaker. Ring, ring, ring. Barbara rolled over groggily and grabbed the handset. Hello, she muttered. May I speak with Barbara Watson, said the clipped voice on the other end of the line. Speaking. This is Virginia Newhouse from the Lady Minto Hospital. Your mother has broken her hip, and we are medevacking her to Victoria General for tests. Okay, thanks. When will she get back? There was a moment of silence. Mrs. Watson, this is an emergency surgery. Your mother will be at Victoria General for at least a few days before she can be moved back here. Oh. Mrs. Watson... Yeah. Come and see your mother. You have an hour before the helicopter lands, said Virginia in a more commanding tone. Yep. Goodbye. Bye. She heard a click on the other end of the line and rolled over to replace the phone receiver on the nightstand. It collided with a half-empty water glass, which then tipped over. She watched the water spread across the surface, touching an old pair of orange industrial earplugs and a pile of grocery receipts before pooling up along the edge of a dusty Deepak Chopra book. She sighed. The exact moment her relationship with her mother soured was never far from her mind. She was eleven. She walked into the kitchen. The air was heavy with the smell of scrambled eggs and back bacon. Her stomach lurched. Her mother was shaking with rage and pointing a wooden spoon at her father, who was seated at the kitchen table. He was holding a newspaper the tabloid-sized Gulf Islands driftwood. It was a flimsy defense against the tirade her mother was unleashing. Her father was a veteran of many of these one-sided conflicts. As she watched the argument play out, she imagined the words her mother spat out hitting the newspaper and sliding onto the table like drops of rain pelting a window during a winter storm. She lifted her gaze to her father's face. Flickers of anger and fear skittered across his eyes but as always, they returned to calmness. He would stand his ground passively and wait for the storm to clear. Her mother redoubled her attacks, trying to break through his defenses to get the reaction she craved. Barbara had no idea what the argument was about. It didn't matter. They were always the same. He'd done something that exposed a flaw in her mother's perfectly constructed world, a hole through which light shone, exposing the ugliness inside. Her mother would try to stuff the hole shut with her anger and then seal it up by blaming her father. As she continued to watch, something shifted. 
Her father flinched. His eyes widened and then lost focus. Just like he had when he'd banged his finger hard with a hammer when they were working on her playhouse years ago. The hurt spread across his face over the next few terrible seconds. Her mother kept hammering at him. His jaw went slack. His eyes lost focus. They stopped sparkling. He looked so empty. And she felt so scared. Six months later, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He lived another agonizing month after that. Barbara knew her mother had killed him, first slowly, then all of a sudden at the breakfast table that morning. Several outfit choices lay scattered about the room. All she had to do was pick one and head to the hospital. She stared at the stucco ceiling for a solid two minutes. She sighed again, rolled out of bed, and grabbed the two closest items. Her khaki uniform pants from the ferry and a faded purple sweatshirt with a dramatic painting of a wolf on it. Throwing them onto the unmade bed, she scrabbled in the dresser, finding underwear and socks. She completed her ensemble with the bra that somehow came off in the night and lay tangled in the sheets. The elastic on the underwear was blown out on the right leg. The left sock had a hole in the heel. The bra was once white. The pants were a size too small and took some effort to get over her hips. The sweatshirt was a size too large and covered her hips completely. She padded into the kitchen. And as she rinsed her travel coffee cup, she surveyed the counter around the coffee machine. Eleven of the twelve single-serving coffee pods had two holes already pierced in their foil tops. But one had only a single hole. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, she said aloud, popping the pod into the machine and setting her cup underneath. She dropped the lever and pushed the brew button in a single mechanical motion. The machine whirred to life. She put on her shoes and then returned to collect the cup and walked out the front door. Shit, she muttered as she spotted the seatbelt hanging out the side of the car door. She opened the driver's door and reached in to turn the ignition on and release the handbrake. She leaned into the doorframe and pushed. The car began to move, gathering speed down the driveway. She hopped in, pulled the shift lever into third, and popped the clutch. The engine roared to life, and she braked hard to make the first 90-degree turn. She could feel the damp soaking through her pants already from the wet car seat, and the seatbelt strap had already left a wet slash through the soaring eagle on her chest. The whole car smelled like wet cardboard. But the road to town was quiet, and a few cyclists and cars passed in the other direction, but thankfully no hitchhikers to studiously ignore. It used to be so much easier before the distracted driving laws when she could just look down at her phone as she went past their hopeful faces and outstretched thumbs. The hospital was just above town, up a small hill from the grocery store, and then down again on the back side of the hill, so you had to go back up the hill to get out. Like the walk to school that every Canadian parent insists they did every day when their kids complain about how hard things are. She left the car at the apex of the hill by the side of the road. It was a steep, short run down to the stop sign on the main road. Grabbing her purse, she heaved herself out of the car and slammed the door on the seatbelt. Her left pant leg was wet from her hip to her knee. It stuck to her as she walked down to the hospital. Where would I find Dorothy Watson? She asked the front desk clerk. The clerk tapped a few keys on her computer. Intensive care. Go straight ahead, then take your first left and look for a blue set of doors. They'll have to buzz you in. Barbara walked down the hallway and took the first right. A sign read, 
radiology. She continued walking until another read pediatrics. A few more steps to a third that read maternity. She got to the end of the wing and turned around. She walked back to the main hall and returned to the nurse's station. I couldn't find it, said Barbara. The nurse got up from her desk. I'll show you, she said. She led Barbara down the hall, turned left, and then pointed at a blue set of doors. A sign above them read, Intensive Care. Barbara walked into a ward with a dozen beds separated by blue curtains that hung almost to the floor. Every bed had a weary-looking patient, a chart, and the same battery of life support equipment. Only one bed had a Laura Ashley floral bedspread. Hi, Mom. Uh, how are you? asked Barbara as she poked her head around the curtain. I broke my hip, dear. I'm in a lot of pain. An uncomfortable silence fell across the room. I don't know that I've ever felt such pain, her mother continued. Well, perhaps delivering you. Barbara sighed. Sorry, Mom. That sucks. Dorothy's face screwed up like she'd eaten something sour. I was always so careful to ensure you didn't do anything foolish to break a bone as a child. Barbara's father used to poke fun at her mother's obsessive protection by calling her Bubble Rat Barbara when her mother was out of earshot. A smile crept into the corners of Barbara's mouth. She tried to stifle it, but it was too late. Are you smiling, Barbara? Will I lie here in pain? Dorothy accused. No. It sure looked like a smile, she persisted. It wasn't, Mom. Dorothy looked disappointed. I'm not even sure I should ask this question, ventured Dorothy. What question, Mom? countered Barbara. Well, I won't be able to tend to Falcon Nest bed and breakfast for the next while. At least not until I'm no longer in excruciating pain. I can do it, Mom, Barbara cut in. Oh, dear. You mistook my intentions. I wouldn't dream of asking you to tend to Falcon's Nest, Dorothy laughed. The laugh had a cruel edge to it. That would be a disaster. Do you remember the summer you worked for me? Yes, Barbara replied. Whenever guests would discover a dirty plate or a hastily made bed, they'd say, I've been barbara again, Dorothy chortled. I did my best, Mom. Of course you did, dear. You're just not cut out for that kind of work. I'm so happy you found that job on the ferry. It's perfect for someone of your temperament. Dorothy winced in pain as she finished speaking. Do you want me to get someone? Barbara asked. No. These nurses are incompetent. Half are only here because they're married to doctors, and the other half were trained overseas, Dorothy replied. Right. So, back to Falcon's Nest. I've spoken to my contacts at the Bed and Breakfast Association, and they are preparing a short list of their best operators seeking locum opportunities, Dorothy explained. Barbara nodded. They've assured me that several of the candidates can be here on short notice. Nonetheless, there will be a gap of several days, Dorothy continued. Uh-huh, replied Barbara. Oh, I do wish you wouldn't be so monosyllabic. Now, I could ask Eileen, but she can't make it until 9 a.m. because her son's helper doesn't start until then. My former employee Cindy can do early mornings, but has to be at work by 8 a.m. So there's this pesky gap from 8 a.m. until 9 a.m. 
Dorothy's voice trailed off. You could just tell guests that breakfast is served before 8 a.m. or after 9 a.m., Barbara volunteered. Dorothy fixed her with a withering look and then winced. Barbara couldn't tell if she was wincing in pain or wincing in response to Barbara's suggestion. That might work on the ferry, but not at a five-star bed and breakfast, Dorothy replied. She sighed. I may just have to shut down for a few days. Oh, my guests will be so disappointed. A faraway look crossed her face as she stared straight over the edge of the bed. Her eyes flicked over to look at Barbara with a piercing clarity and then quickly lost focus and drifted forward again before she was spotted. They'll understand. You can make it up to them when you're better, Barbara agreed. She watched as her mother's face crumbled. A tear formed in her right eye and rolled slowly down her wrinkled cheek. Oh, Barbara, your father is dead. I barely see you. There are no grandchildren. Falcon's Nest and my beloved guests are all that I have left, she cried. Another tear rolled down her cheek. Barbara stared at her mother, buying herself a few seconds to catch up with the sudden emotional change. I'm in such terrible pain, Dorothy added, wincing again. I'm sorry, Mom. Yes, I'll help out for a few days, just until you're better. Dorothy sniffed. You do that for me? she whispered. Yes. Dorothy raised her head and reached up to her neck. She pulled off a necklace, and the necklace had a single key on it. Here is the key to Falcon's Nest, she said solemnly. Barbara began to cry. I'll take good care of it, Mom. Don't worry. The nurse came in. It's time to move you, Mrs. Watson, the nurse commanded. Dorothy's tears evaporated. I've been in too much pain to call Eileen and Cindy, so you'll have to see if they're available, Dorothy instructed. What? Barbara protested. The nurse raised the rails on the bed and began rolling it towards the door. I'll be watching TripAdvisor to see how you're doing, said Dorothy as she was rolled out of the room. Barbara stood staring at the empty space where the bed had been. The key was still in her outstretched hand and the silver chain dangled toward the floor. She closed her hand around the key and squeezed it so hard that her fist shook. Ah! she yelled. How the fuck did that happen? The key felt heavy in her hand, and her stomach churned. The fluorescent lights buzzed overhead. She staggered into the hallway, walked a few steps to an abandoned wheelchair, and then collapsed into it. Her phone buzzed. She fished it out of her pocket and saw a text from an unknown number. Hi, we're on the 11 o'clock. See you soon. She screwed up her face and slid her finger over to reply to the text. Sorry, who is this? Buzz. Oh, sorry, Keith and Miranda. We're coming in from Vancouver for three nights. Buzz. Will you still be able to pick us up from the ferry? Shit. Fuck. Cunt. She muttered under her breath and texted back. Wrong number. She held her breath as the three little dots indicated that Keith, slash Miranda, was, were, typing at the other end. Then the dots disappeared. She exhaled and leaned her head over the back of the chair. Her phone buzzed again. This is the number for Falcon House B&B, right? Her stomach churned again as she loaded the website for her mother's B&B. Classic music overlaid with chirping birds rose softly from her phone's speaker. 
Her mother's 70-year-old webmaster still thought that shit worked. She scrolled to the bottom of the page. The phone number listed was her mobile number. She flung her finger up to get to the top of the page and clicked on Contact Us. Her phone number appeared again. Oh, Mom, she groaned. She took a long, deep breath and angrily texted back. Take a taxi. Silver Shadow's number is 537-1212. The three dots appeared immediately. Their phone buzzed and the screen read, It says on TripAdvisor that guests are always picked up from the ferry and given an arrival welcome package. Barbara started texting back, I don't give a fuck with TripAdvisor. She stopped typing. TripAdvisor. If the pushy fucks tattled on her, her mother would know immediately. She erased her text and started again. Sorry, that message was meant for someone else. See you at 12.30. The three dots appeared again. Buzz. Ferry emoticon. Guy with sunglasses emoticon. Red car emoticon. Oh, great, they're millennials too, she muttered aloud. She left the hospital and walked back to her car. And then she heaved herself into the driver's seat. She turned the key, put the clutch in, and released the emergency brake. The car began to roll down the hill. She watched as the speedometer wound slowly up to 15 kilometers an hour, and then she popped the clutch, and the car jumped to life. The stop sign at the bottom of the hill was approaching quickly. She stepped on the brakes. The car slowed, but not enough. As she skidded past the stop sign and onto the main road, an orange Volkswagen van swerved around her hood. The dreamcatcher hanging off its rearview mirror danced wildly, and this driver silently mouthed, Hey, watch out, man! She turned left and headed out the road to the ferry. As she passed the barn that she used as a marker for two kilometers to the terminal, a stream of traffic began passing her in the opposite direction. Fuck, the ferry's already in, she cursed aloud. She kept driving, and cars continued to pass her in the opposite direction, and her phone buzzed again. It's pretty busy here. Which car are you? She passed a hand-carved sign at the one-kilometer mark that read, Welcome to Sandpiper. Welcome. Welcome, she muttered aloud. Welcome package. Shit, I'm supposed to bring a welcome package. She spotted a farm stand up ahead and pulled over, leaving the car running. Eggs, strawberries, wildflowers, and olive tapenade. How did anyone make a living doing this stuff? She grabbed a pint of berries, the least wilted bunch of wildflowers, and a jar of tapenade. Her wallet was in the car, but it was empty anyways. She scrawled IOU $15 on a scrap of paper. Her hand paused. Then she signed it Jack Brown and shoved it through the slot in the top of the handmade honor box. Halfway to the car, she doubled back and grabbed an empty egg carton. She slid into the car and opened the egg carton on her lap. She poked a hole in it with the pencil she found in the console and jammed the bunch of flowers into the hole. Then she upended the pint of strawberries into the empty egg cups. Finally, she plunked the tapenade jar down on the inside of the open lid. In the remaining open space, she scrawled, Welcome. She paused, and then clicked to her phone to find their name. Unknown caller was all that appeared. Fine people, she scrawled. She stepped on the accelerator and the car spat a cloud of fine gravel and road dust onto Gina's organic farm stand as it leapt back onto the road. As she pulled up to the ferry terminal, there were only two people standing in the parking lot. A tall, young man with stylish glasses and a short redhead furiously texting on her phone. They looked up as Barbara rolled the car into the handicapped parking space and wound down the window. Hi, are you guys looking for 
Falcon Nest B&B? she asked, with a forced smile. Oh my god, yes, said the redhead. I've texted you like six times. Seriously, said Barbara, picking up her phone from the console and noting the entire screen was awash in notifications. I don't text and drive. The redhead rolled her eyes. Can you open the trunk, said the man, telegraphing his distaste for the car, the ferry, and life in general. I can, but it'll never close again, said Barbara. Just sit in the back with your bags, they're not that big. They both rolled their eyes and shuffled towards the car. Is this a loner? the redhead asked, as she got in the back, trying to brighten the situation with a strong dose of false cheer. Nope, this is my daily driver, said Barbara. She reached for the egg carton on the passenger seat and passed it back towards the couple. Here's your welcome package. They both stared at it like Barbara had taken a crap in the egg carton. Neither moved a muscle to take the offering. I'll put it down between you. Stylish glasses muttered. I guess I can turn off Uber now. I didn't find a car anyways. Can we stop at Saturday Market on our way? Asked the redhead. My friends keep pinning this cheese vendor and I totally want a pin and gram it. Barbara looked at her watch. It was 12.45. The market would be in full swing. Correction. It would be a gong show. It's better on Sunday, she said. There was a long pause from the back seat. The couple was quiet. Too quiet. Like when a small child or a puppy is too quiet and then you discover they've been up to no good. It says on Google that it only runs on Saturday, said Stylish Glasses. I forgot to ask your names, Barbara deflected. I'm Barbara. Keith, said Stylish Glasses. Miranda, said the redhead. Well, Keith and Miranda, said Barbara. I'm going to let you in on a little local secret. The market does run on Sunday, and there's a totally different set of vendors. The Sunday cheese guys put the touristy Saturday guy to shame. A self-satisfied, competitive smirk sneaks across Miranda's lips as she turns to Keith. That is legit awesome, she said in a sing-song voice. Keith adjusted his glasses. Barbara pulled the car up to the front of her mother's house, carefully positioning it to point down the driveway. She reached into the console to grab the key her mother had given her. The doors popped open behind her. Oh my god, it's so cute, said Miranda, as she duck-lipped for a selfie in front of the sign. Keith leaned against the green siding and snapped a picture of his best blue steel pose. Both immediately started tapping away at their phones. Which filter are you using, Bay? asked Miranda. Chromatic, replied Keith. Oh my god, Keith, you always use that filter. I'm going to go with mm, rainbows and unicorns. Keith scoffed. David Hasselblad and Veronica unicorn turds, muttered Barbara under her breath. Hey, Keith. Hey, Miranda. Grab your bags and I'll take you inside. They each holstered their phones and dutifully followed her into the house, leaving their bags behind in the car. Barbara opened the front door and surveyed the inside of the house, spotting the kitchen with the copper pots hanging over the stove on the island. This is where we make breakfast, she said, determined to play tour guide in a house she had not stepped in for eight years. Obs, muttered Miranda. We have a beautiful view over the forest, said Barbara, as she walked towards the double-height windows on the front of the house. You can see many species of trees, including evergreens, oaks, and seedlings. Now, I think we'll set you up over here, she said, 
standing at the entrance to a short hallway to the right of the entry door. The hallway had three doors leading off it. She opened the first one. This is where the hot water tank is, she said. We want our guests to have ample hot water. She closed the door and crossed the hall to open the second door. Inside was a desk and bookshelves. This is her, uh, my office, she said, spotting the famous ledger on her mother's desk. Taking a deep breath, she opened the door at the end of the hallway. The room contained a bed, two nightstands, and a small desk. A pair of boots stood at the end of the bed. A tub of Vaseline graced the nightstand and a plaid housecoat draped over the back of the desk chair. Barbara hesitated briefly before making a sweeping gesture with her arm. Welcome to your home away from home, she said. Oh, wow, deadpan Miranda with a plastic smile. Her lip curled ever so slightly and her nostrils flared. Cool work boots, said Keith, bobbing his head in approval as he walked into the room. Could you, like, bring in our bags? asked Miranda. Are your legs? started Barbara before remembering TripAdvisor. Always so nicely tanned? Miranda's full wattage smile reappeared. I just put on self-tanner yesterday, she said, turning to Keith. I told you it made me look darker. Keith nodded. These boots are so rad, he said, snapping photos on his phone. I'll go get your bags. She walked back out to the car and bent deeply into the back seat to grab Keith's suitcase. It was predictably light. She heaved it onto the hood and unzipped it. Inside were two perfectly rolled t-shirts with ironic sayings, two pairs of socks, and two pairs of underwear. Under these were jeans, rolled, and a small shaving kit that contained beard balm and under-eye cream. She zipped it back up and cast it aside onto the ground like the Incredible Hulk would move a wrecked police car. She reached back in for Miranda's bag. It was predictably heavy. Heaving it onto the hood, she tugged the zipper past the lumps left by the three previous splits. She was assaulted by a pile of clothing. Sundresses, shorts, jeans, crop tops, rompers, and underwear were visible on the top layer. A box of fruit-flavored condoms tumbled out onto the hood. Clearly, Keith was in for a surprise this weekend. Barbara cautiously peered deeper into the midden. She found a gratitude journal, a Tony Robbins book, and a pack of Virginia Slim's menthols. Her investigation complete, she dropped Miranda's suitcase on the ground and sat on it while she zipped it back up again. Barbara lugged both suitcases down the hall, banging them into the walls at least a dozen times and leaving multiple wounds in the pristine drywall. She knocked on the door at the end of the hallway. Mm, yep, said Miranda. I have your suitcases. Leave them outside the door, please. Miranda stifled a moan. Keith made a noise like a dog trying to get peanut butter off the roof of his mouth. Barbara retreated down the hallway toward the kitchen, checking her watch along the way. 4.15. Wine o'clock. She opened the fridge and spotted a half bottle of some unpronounceable German wine. She preferred wines with animal names. Rifling through the cupboards didn't immediately yield a suitable glass, so she grabbed a small flower vase from the dish rack, threw in a few ice cubes, and filled it up with wine to within half an inch from the top. She took a long gulp, topped up her glass again, and walked towards the front deck. Once outside, she sunk into a faux wicker chair and took a few more good slugs of wine from the vase. It tasted a little like diesel fuel. She closed her eyes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.